Zero-knowledge proofs have been a notorious research target ever since Zcash and other cryptocurrencies invented lots of new use cases for them. Range proofs, bullet proofs, you name it. All kinds of zero-knowledge mechanisms have received more and more attention recently. But what about using zero-knowledge proofs to prove the existence of a software vulnerability? That way, you can prove that you have a zero-day without risking it getting stolen, putting both vulnerability researchers as well as companies looking to secure their software in a better position. That's what Dr. David Archer from Galois is working on, and he joins me today on Cryptography FM to discuss this interesting use case and more. Dr. Dave Archer has over 35 years of experience in R&D, in computer architecture, data-intensive systems, secure computation, and cryptography. He serves as principal investigator on projects in several DARPA, IARPA, and DHS S&T programs, is an active member of the United Nations Privacy Preserving Task Team, and is a subject matter expert on privacy preserving, data sharing, and related cryptographic techniques for government and private industry. Dr. Archer's current research interests include secure multi-party computation, efficient zero-knowledge proofs, and anti-censorship and anti-surveillance technologies. Uh, thank you so much. Um, should I call you Dave or David? Dave is fine. I'm happy to be here. Thanks. Galois is a pretty big research company. You guys have forays into formal methods, which I'm more familiar with, but apparently you're also doing work on zero-knowledge proofs. So. Could you start by telling us more about zero-knowledge proofs just in general? What are they? Uh, how are they usually used? A lot of times I look at investor pitches for cryptography projects and applied crypto projects, and I see things like, you know, our system is zero-knowledge. And then what it turns out to mean is that they don't have data on the server or something. So can you give us the actual definition? Sure. So a good place to start is, that, is an old proverb that's still very true, which is that uh, it's nothing to know something unless another knows you know it. Um, and zero knowledge is like that. You know, today, maybe more than any time in the past, we have to show that we know certain things in order to participate in the world. But in today's world, it's also true that and knowing that you know something by sharing that something can be dangerous, whether it's a passphrase or an account number or even a government credential. We need to show that we know something, but we don't want to share it. So a true zero knowledge system is one that cryptographically prevents someone else from learning something that you know, while you're still able to use mathematical techniques to show them that without a doubt, you indeed know it. And zero knowledge proofs are, are part of that kind of technology. Um, there's a very popular example, if that's useful, uh, about red and green billiard balls and a colorblind partner who maybe doesn't believe that you can actually distinguish between the two colors. Um, but maybe you also want to keep uh, from them, which one's red and which one's green. Uh, so this proceeds in rounds where uh, you have the person hold the two billiard balls up, and then you say, fine, uh, hold them behind your back, and it, you can choose to switch hands with them or not, and then show them to me again. And you can continually pick out, let's say, the green one. 
and say, that's uh, of a different color, or actually all you need to say is, you switched hands, or you didn't switch hands. So the colorblind partner can't tell the colors, but after a certain number of trials, is going to be very convinced that you know that the colors are discernible because they know that they changed hands or didn't when you said the same thing. So that's one way of proving in zero knowledge, the zero knowledge being you didn't let them know which one was red or which one was green, uh, but you communicated the knowledge that you do indeed know that you can differentiate. So today, the most common use of zero knowledge proofs is in cryptocurrencies uh, that allow participants to keep transactions anonymous. Uh, remember that Bitcoin, for example, is not anonymous. It's only pseudonymous. Um, because even while keeping the source and destination and amount anonymous, parties still need to know the transactions are valid. We need something better than pseudonymous. Uh, for example, we might want to know or prove that coins weren't double spent, uh, yet not reveal who spent the coins to whom and how many. So Zcash, zero cash, is one such cryptocurrency. Uh, but the problems with zero knowledge proofs in, in cryptocurrencies is that they're really designed to keep the proofs concise so they're easy to transmit over a network and minimize the effort required by the verifier of the proof because that's done a lot more frequently perhaps than uh, proving. Unfortunately, what happens is this shifts substantial effort to the prover, what we'll call a super linear effort to the prover, and that limits the complexity of what kind of proofs can be constructed. So there's a lot of really interesting and fascinating examples here, uh, and I really want to get into them. So basically, I think that there's an epistemological dimension to what you said regarding proving to someone that uh, an extra color is out there that they can't perceive. You know, We've always wondered how we would be able to communicate that information given that we can't imagine colors outside of our um, um, field of experience. And I found that outside of the realm of zero-knowledge proofs to be a very interesting topic, and I didn't expect that this would be an example. I know also um, that a more practical example is uh, range proofs, and I know that range proofs are indeed used by a bunch of cryptocurrencies, and these are uh, constructions where you can have basically, um, you can show someone that a certain value uh, that you possess is indeed between uh, a large number and a smaller number, without actually revealing more information than that about the value. Is that a correct description? That's correct. You can, that's a, a relatively simple proof, but yes, that's right. Okay. Uh, so you want to use your knowledge proofs in a totally different way. I don't know whether it has to do with um, whether range proofs are useful, whether billiard balls are useful. You want to target the zero-day vulnerability market. So um, in such a way that you can show that someone actually possesses a software vulnerability without communicating more information than that. Uh, that's really interesting. Could you tell us more about that? Sure. So one thing to say is it may not be quite correct to think of it as a market because uh, there are a number of applications that don't directly involve exchange of value, let's say. In general, though, the idea is to be able to prove that, uh, let's say, a vulnerability exists in critical software without revealing how it's caused. Um, or an alternative would be to prove that some critical software is immune to, let's say, a whole class of vulnerabilities. Uh, for example, that a program is what we call memory safe. Um, so one example use of technology like this uh, would support uh, global cyber health. Uh, so today, you know, security researchers are pretty often caught in this conundrum 
they find flaws or vulnerabilities in software, and then they can either report it to the manufacturer or they can reveal the flaw openly. The problem is if you do the former, sometimes you get sued to stop work uh, because the the manufacturer simply doesn't want to deal with that uh, cost of fixing a problem, and they'd rather have it hushed up, if you will. Um, On the other hand, if you reveal the flaw openly and you publish, I found this vulnerability and here's how to cause it, that's not really ethical, uh, and it's going to... cause trouble in global cyber health because people will almost instantly start exploiting it. So the former of those is is not great because it penalizes good diligent work. The latter is unethical. If there was a way to prove in zero knowledge that this flaw exists without revealing how to cause it, then you can solve that conundrum. So in that case, what do you have? You have a manufacturer who is sort of correctly now open to public pressure and humiliation uh, while still unable to make a court case against the researcher. um, And now zero knowledge has served a good purpose. Uh, There are other things as well. We'll talk a a bit about, I'm sure. Uh, There is the idea of a gray market for vulnerabilities uh, that's bound up in this idea somewhere. You can imagine that a seller would want to prove that they have a vulnerability without revealing it until after they're paid. Uh, While on the other hand, the buyer wants to really know that it's a real vulnerability uh, before being paid. So another conundrum and another place where zero knowledge proofs could offer the assurance to both sides that the deal should go forward. Um, What's really interesting about what you said is that you actually, it appears to me, extended your security goals or the goals that you want out of your zero knowledge system. Not only are you targeting justifying the existence of vulnerabilities in software, but you also seem to be saying that you can prove the total non-existence of classes, specific classes of vulnerabilities. That sounds like it could be a lot harder. I don't know yet how your technique uh, works or what kind of research it draws on, but can it really be the case that there's a foundation for encoding something like uh, notions of memory safety across a piece of software and saying, here's a proof that this class of vulnerabilities cannot exist in this software? It can be done, although admittedly, uh, a lot of this is the focus of current research. Um, but uh, in some sense, we turn, we turn from the initial idea, which is uh, show that for one execution of a program with this fixed set of inputs, that a certain thing happens, to a different approach, which is show that for any input, and thus all executions of a program, Uh, a thing happens or doesn't happen. Um, So it is harder, uh, but formal methods approaches that take advantage of the use of SAT solvers, let's say, uh, to explore the space of inputs and their effects on execution uh, can do this. Um, We have some early examples that show that now for very simple programs. And the challenge in the next years is going to be to beef that up to where it can handle realistic software. So it is a big challenge. But we do see a pathway to get there. Well, let's talk about the general construction. So how would you fashion a zero-knowledge construction that can share reliable information about the existence of a software vulnerability? Um, what I'm really interested about here, again, is the context. You know, I feel like when you're describing a software vulnerability, the context is highly dependent. You know, um, For example, in the case of WhatsApp, not only do you need... So recently, there was a WhatsApp vulnerability where there was a low-level, I think, 
some kind of buffer overflow in C or something in the voice over IP library that were, that they were using. And this generalized over uh, remote code execution on WhatsApp, which could also be remote code execution on the uh, host operating mobile operating system. So let's say you could capture that, which I, again, I would love to know how more about how you can actually capture this in zero knowledge proofs. But what I would also like to know is how can you capture the context that the vulnerability affects? How, how can you say within your proof that no, this isn't just some isolated buffer overflow uh, or something, but this is actually something that can generalize into a really highly severe uh, vulnerability that can have real impact on real world devices somewhere? So that's a good question. I, because we really don't have a way to talk about, let's say, the severity of what happens. Uh, what we can do is simply, uh, let's say, state a property like memory safety, it has a very uh, well-refined definition, or a property being a, a existence of a certain you know, buffer overflow. Uh, and then we can uh, improve that in zero knowledge that that property is or isn't holding over either one execution of a program, if we're trying to prove a vulnerability, or all executions. So um, we can't, however, extrapolate that into what could be done with it. So in some sense, severity is, is a bit in the eye of the beholder. Uh, we can say that uh, something exists that breaks a property you said you cared about, uh, but we can't say anything about, so how bad is this? How easy is it to exploit? Does it matter? Uh, because in some sense, that's really a, a matter of, of a, a chain of events, uh, an effort that's willing to be put in by an exploiter of those uh, events. Um, so. And after all, the, the vulnerability might be uh, not very important in the sense that it doesn't risk any critical information, or it might be quite important. It might be the keys to the corporation. So we can't really reason in computers, of course, about these kind of deep semantics, the meaning or implications of. And because of that, we can't really express them in uh, a, a proof in the clear, much less a proof in zero knowledge. Okay, well, let's jump to maybe a question we should have tackled at the very beginning. So could you give us a high level overview of how this would work in a technical sense? How would you show the existence of, let's say, a buffer overflow using uh, zero knowledge proofs? Sure. So uh, so in zero knowledge proofs, the, the critical distinction here is, is between what's shared public information between a prover party who wants to show that the thing happens or doesn't happen, and a verifier party who wants to be able to learn that fact, but uh, the prover wants to not share uh, the secret of how it happens, let's say. So the critical distinction is shared public information uh, and a secret that's held by the prover and won't be displayed to the, the verifier. And we can call that uh, the witness uh, in zero knowledge terminology. So in zero knowledge, proving a vulnerability uh, we want the application itself to be the former category. We want to know and both share knowledge of what program are we talking about? Because without that, the proof doesn't make much sense. Uh, so if the application code needs to be kept private, though, which it might sometimes, let's say it's a commercial software product and uh, a, a vendor is trying to prove to customers that uh, a certain kind of vulnerability does not exist in this product, but doesn't want to reveal their code, then instead of sharing in public the program, what they'll share is what I'll call a cryptographic commitment uh, to the executable of the program. So either way, we have in common in public 
what it is that we're talking about, what program. Uh, but on the other hand, the input, let's say, that causes a vulnerability uh, or the analysis that shows that the vulnerability isn't there, which is itself a program run over that program to show that the vulnerability class doesn't exist. Uh, that's the thing that has particular value and we should keep secret. So the construction of a zero knowledge proof might be something like this. You know, public information would be the identity of the program and the property that you want to prove that's shared. Um, and so that might be the existence of a vulnerability, or it might be the property that's more general, like, <coughs> excuse me, memory safety. Um, so the program's concrete performance also is another kind of uh, program property you might want to prove, and we call that uh, performance security. And so there are several things you might prove in the way of properties. Uh, but we state those publicly, the program, the properties. The witness might be uh, a specific vulnerability input uh, and let's say a concrete execution trace of the program uh, using that input to process. So remember this witness isn't revealed to the verifier, um, but the hard question here is if you want to prove that a property holds across all inputs for a program, then our witness has to show that uh, the program never reaches a state that's undesirable. So whether we're proving an exact execution trace that this input gets to this point in the program, which is bad, or a, an abstract execution trace that no input causes a program to get to a bad place, we have the same kind of thing we want to convey in the witness. And the latter is the big win if we can get there, but it's still uh, a bit under research. So in terms of actual construction, given what's public there and what's private there, we're currently looking at two ideas that seem promising. Uh, one is called commit and prove. And it might be the easier one to understand. And the idea is that we take this program uh, and the prover converts it into a circuit and then maps the inputs, the secret witness inputs to the circuit wires. And the prover does all this on its own, on the side, so the verifier can't see. And then what happens is the prover provides cryptographic commitments. And here a hash is an example of a cryptographic commitment. Uh, for every wire value in the circuit as it evaluates the circuit. Uh, and then it can prove along the way to the verifier that, hey, the committed uh, values that I gave you commitments for satisfy the logic equations of every gate in the circuit that I gave you that represents the program. So you're proving that even though I'm not showing you the wire values, uh, they're consistent for every gate. And that's a way of getting to a zero knowledge proof. The other construction um, may be more intuitive for some people, and it's called the MPC in the head construction. And here we're bringing in techniques from multi-party computation. Uh, in this case, what happens is the prover runs the execution as a computation in its head that involves several parties, each using cryptographic shares of the inputs. So it acts as if it was running an MPC computation. Uh, and then what it does is it can share one or more of those traces with the prover, with a verifier, sorry. So because the verifier can't recover any variables in the program with fewer than some threshold of those number of traces, then the prover can reveal sufficient information that the verifier can prove that, hey, the trace that I'm seeing you're showing me is actually consistent and it's consistent across 
many such samples, it's really, really unlikely that you would be able to fool me with the remaining samples that you can't show me. So in both cases, what we're doing is sharing partial knowledge. We're sharing either cryptographic commitments that remain consistent and can be checked by the verifier, or we're sharing uh, numbers of traces that uh, together reveal nothing except the correct path of execution that we claim on the prover side. And in either case, the verifier is convinced uh, overwhelmingly that, oh, it would be so hard to fool me that you can't be fooling me here. Um, if I am to summarize basically the a very high level sort of insight into how this technique would work, it has a lot to do with uh, the states of a program, describing uh, a state within some computer program and also describing the reachability of that state and offering evidence of reachability of a, of a particular state or a lack of reachability. Is that, would that be a correct, very high level summary? Yes, and that's actually one of the ways that the uh, commit and prove approach uh, is handled today, exactly. Okay, so if this is the approach, um, if I'm thinking about this in a simple way, I'm a software a vulnerability finder, a black hat or something, and I want to show you that I can that I can get to a bad place in the state. You know, I can actually um, can cause memory corruption. I can sort of see how this is possible in in the framework that you're describing. But what about another thing that you said, showing that I cannot get to a bad place? So to me, that sounds really difficult because wouldn't you have to describe within that proof that all kinds of uh, scenarios in that software where that bad place could be. So let's say that that place is actually a state where you have, again, memory corruption. Um, can you really capture within that uh, proof information that you're sending all possible cases of potential memory corruption in the software? Can you be sure that you've gotten every single case? And can you really say that if I show you that none of these states are reachable, then we do not have cases of memory corruption in the program? I mean, how can you be sure that there aren't any sort of less obvious uh, uh, points of entry or maybe a chain of vulnerabilities that can actually result ultimately in memory corruption. So to me, again, like I asked in my previous question, what's really blowing my mind here is the notion of being able to prove the absence of vulnerabilities specifically because it seems that you're proving this uh, based on the assumed perfect knowledge of all the places that the vulnerabilities could occur, or is that uh, not a correct um, representation? Well, so this, this is a really good point. Um, and in fact, I, I'd say that uh, we can tease this point apart from the zero knowledge issue, because uh, the question you're asking applies whether you express the proof in zero knowledge or not. So now we're, we're firmly into the space of formal methods. Uh, the question is, can you uh, prove in any way that a, a property holds for a software that is a general property, that is, that holds for all inputs and every execution of the program. Uh, this is an area very much in current research. Uh, the, the, the short answer is yes, it can be done. The longer answer is only for limited size programs at the moment. You can imagine, let's say that, uh, let's idealize a program. If you can really idealize a program, let's say to a circuit representation, um, then you could uh, test every input to that circuit, every possible input, and look at what happens in the circuit. 
as a result of what the outputs are, if you will, and establish is that uh, something that conforms to the property I want or not. So you could do this approach as a, as a way of repeatedly testing every possible input and checking its output. And in fact, that's what some uh, formal methods techniques do. They use uh, SAP solvers, which are very, very good at uh, finding inputs that trigger certain properties, it turns out. Um, and the SAP solver can essentially approach this NP-hard problem uh, and offer you at some point proof uh, that you do or don't have this property held. Uh, so it can be done, but but there really is some idealization here that the programs you can do it for are, today are fairly short. They're so fun. how short how short are we talking? So we think about today in the formal methods work we do is being able to construct such proofs for programs that may be, let's say, a few thousand or ten thousands of lines. It's not millions of lines like you'd see in a, a real application, a commercial application. That's not short at all. I mean, you could have implementations of uh, entire... Uh, protocols like TLS 1.3 or Signal, that's way shorter than 10,000. Well, TLS that's is a bit more maybe, but still, I mean, these are pretty sophisticated protocols. And I think probably you could have, uh, let's look at WireGuard. You know, WireGuard is really well known for, I think, capturing all of its source code in C, uh, which is not a particularly, um, you know, uh, succinct language uh, if you want to code safely in it. And I think, and I hope I'm not uh, misrepresenting this here, about definitely less than 5,000 uh, lines of code. So are these uh, protocols where you could actually um, uh, today apply a technique like this, given that they're not very large, but have very security critical use cases? Yes, there are. Uh, we, we can do that for some product. In fact, um, we do a fair bit of formal methods work in the commercial space today. Um, there's a fair bit of work uh, with some protocols that are uh, replacements for TLS that are in the similar you know, complexity categories TLS, and we're actually able to prove significant properties like that, that certain classes of things don't happen uh, today. Uh, so that's, it's done, it's just to say, if you want to extend that and get to a, a proof of vulnerability, let's say, or a proof of resistance of a class of vulnerabilities in a, in a major commercial application, that is a different animal, we, and we are not approaching that yet. Mm -hmm. That's right. Okay, so aside from a wire guard and signal. Are there some other related use cases where you can foresee this particular uh, zero knowledge proof technique having any uh, relevance? And I know that you can target a really large uh, systems like, I know you guys work with DARPA, who knows, maybe you're verifying the crypto that makes the planet turn on its axis or something. But what are some other cases where you think this could be relevant? And also, when can we actually see this in the real world, I, I think a lot of people in academia would really like to see uh, uh, this described in more detail, but not just that. I think that there are so many uh, stakeholders in this, people in the vulnerability industry, obviously, people in academia, people who like, for example, maybe Apple, who could really be interested in like having a better relationship with, I know that they're very defensive regarding the security of their products. Um, so a better, more, you know, healthier, more trusting relationships with uh, vulnerability reporters. Um, so are there any extra use cases that you've been able to cover? And when can we see this hitting the real world? And when can we have you talk more about how this actually works in concrete detail? Sure. So, and one thing to say is, by the way, a, a lot of the formal methods we apply are in the space of cryptography and improving uh, properties of cryptographic algorithms. Uh, Although it's, it's not a zero knowledge question there, it's really a formal methods question. 
uh, at least so far. But there are some examples of where zero knowledge would be very useful here. Uh, one idea is uh, computer program diversity. So we're seeing diversity of executables as an emerging technique uh, to prevent cyber attacks. You know, let's say you have a program and you randomly generate a number of uh, representations of the program and you run one at random or you maybe even run several and then have them checkpoint each other to make sure that uh, no one has uh, corrupted any one of them uh, and maybe fail to a, 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 hard, a hard backup one if you, if you do find a, a problem. Um, so that's an emerging technique, but you could prove to a client, let's say, that all those random implementations you generate have the same functionality as the original, because without that, you're stuck trying to figure out, well, why should I believe this randomly generated permutation? Uh, so if you can prove that each one is equivalent to some original uh, and do so in zero knowledge, because you may not want to reveal your, your proprietary code, uh, then that's a potential big win. Um, another government example uh, is uh, that there's a good deal of information that's available, of course, on a need-to-know basis. Um, and those kind of constraints raise the possibility of, uh, let's say, a cyber defense team using tools but not being quite allowed to see the source code of those tools or verify how they work. Zero-knowledge proofs could be valuable here as well. They could, for example, provide proof to a cyber defense team that certain properties hold in the tools they're using, and so they're immune to certain uh, counter vulnerabilities, let's say, uh, but re without requiring that that team uh, be privy to the information about the tools in terms. So that's a couple of examples, and there are many more. I suppose that can be generalized simply to the concept of protecting trade secrets, right? Outside of government. I, I want to show you I have a cool technology. I don't want to show you how it works. Maybe it's, you know, a really good search engine or something. I can use that as well. Yeah, wh wherever you have the ability to state a property cleanly, right, that, that, that you can, that you want to see proven of this um, code, then there's a chance to construct zero knowledge proof that proves that without revealing the code, for example. That's right. Okay. So um, I think we can sort of move on to the final part of this uh, interview. Uh, I'd like you to talk more maybe about the focus of uh, your research on zero-knowledge proof uh, software and software properties, uh, especially in the context of Galois. Can you tell us more about what Galois is doing in general on this? I know that you guys have, you know, 100 researchers, which is huge, huge. Um, if you talk about applied cryptography research, you're basically the equivalent of a mega corporation uh, when it comes to the, the size of other applied cryptography research labs, at least as far as I'm personally aware. So you've had a lot of success with Cryptol in formal methods. Could you tell us more about um, the kind of interesting work that you're doing on zero knowledge proofs and uh, topics related to what we discussed just now? Well, we're really pleased at the moment to, to be a prime contractor on this multi-year uh, program by DARPA. It's called CIV. It's about zero-knowledge proofs and scaling them to practical applications. Uh, the DARPA program manager is Joshua Barron. Um, this is a great program to be involved in. It's very exciting. Um, and our team is, is diverse. It's not just Galois folks. It's also multinational. We have uh, faculty at... Uh, what's typically called KUL Leuven, uh, Catholic University Leuven in Belgium. We have uh, faculty at the Aarhus University in Denmark. We have other faculty at Columbia University in New York. 
as well as researchers at a small company called Kedit in Israel. All of those folks are uh, on our team, subcontracting, if you will, uh, for Galois. And uh, this is a great team effort. So our work on that project uh, is actually two separate projects. And together, uh, they create a robust software platform. And the idea is that that platform is going to be able to prove whether or not vulnerabilities exist in software without revealing how they're caused, um, assess properties of things like cyber cyberspace operations capabilities without accessing their source code, and the other things we've talked about here earlier. Um, so one of those projects is really about the formal methods side, if you will, the coming up with the proving of the property. And then the second project is about the turning that proof into a zero knowledge proof. So on the former side, uh, Dr. Bill Harris at Galois heads up that project. Um, you know, tools from that project, and we happen to call that project internally the Cheesecloth Project, because it's part of the SIV program. Ha uh ha. -huh. Um, tools from that project will encode proof statements for up to five classes of software properties that we're researching. One is memory safety that we talked about before. Uh, a second is integer overflow safety. Um, third is another one I alluded to earlier, the idea of performance security. For example, that there are no uh, low-level DOS attacks um, uh, available against an application. A fourth is information flow security. And finally, is this notion of functional equivalence, R2 programs equivalent. So that's the focus over the next four years or so in this program of the kinds of statements we'd like to prove about increasingly complex programs. So the idea here is that this cheesecloth project is going to use a pretty rich instruction set uh, to encode these statements. Uh, for example, instead of encoding them in what's called rank one constraint systems, which is a frequently used approach today in zero knowledge proofs uh, as input to, to form the proof, uh, we may use things like a byte code from a multi-party computation engine uh, to do that. Uh, so that's the first project is it's actually to get from program and inputs and stated property to proof, uh, but not zero knowledge proof yet. The second project is about turning those into zero knowledge proofs. So Dr. Alex Malazimov of Galois is heading up that effort for us. And uh, in the tools for that project, which we call Quark, uh, those tools take the proof statements from Cheesecloth and execute them on one or two different distinct zero knowledge platforms. And the first one, is based on the commit and prove idea I talked about earlier, where the prover commits every input wire value cryptographically to the verifier, and then proves that all the gate executions in the, the circuit equivalent of the program are consistent. And the other platform is an MPC in the head approach that I talked about earlier as well, where we execute an MPC program uh, in the head of the prover and then can share a limited number of the traces and intermediate values that aren't sufficient to construct any information except uh, proof of the property we state. So a central theme of Quark is that in both these platforms, we're using MPC ideas, uh, and we aim to adapt a bunch of the uh, innovations from the MPC space uh, to the zero-knowledge paradigm. And there's a project page at galois.com uh, where you can actually see more about these two projects and how they link together. I'll definitely be linking that in the podcast description. Uh, this all sounds to me like really ambitious, real software, uh, real research. 
And I really hope to see a publication on this so we can learn more about the science and the technology about how this works. Uh, this is all very exciting. Um, what's the level of open sourceness or free softwareness that's going to be behind all of this? I know that you have some uh, government funding. And so is this all kind of confidential technology or will you be sharing uh, research uh, techniques and open source software with the general applied cryptography community? Well, so Galois aims uh, to always open source everything we can of what we do. Uh, in the case of most of our government research, and I believe it's also true of this program, um, the idea is that all the, although the government, since they're funding this, in this case DARPA is funding it, um, requires what we call government uh, purpose rights. That is, they can take what's done there or what's shown there and take advantage of it if, as they choose. Um, generally, the way that uh, these projects go together is that we also have the right to open source everything we do. Uh, unless it's classified, and, and very little of our work is, uh, we plan to open source this uh, set of results in the along with the publications that come from it. That's very exciting. Um, we are already over our time. I try to keep these episodes to a 35-minute format, but I don't regret it. This is a really good episode. Um, and uh, before we sign off, I usually ask my guests to... Uh, talk about an interesting paper that they've read recently. So I'm kind of conflicted here because I want you to, to like talk about the paper and tell us a little bit about why you found it interesting. But given the title of the paper, I wonder really whether you can do this in less than five, 10 minutes. Uh, so the title is Using GANs, I have no idea what that is, for sharing network time series data, challenges, initial promise, and open questions. I have rarely read a paper title and understood so little before, so maybe you could tell us more about this paper and also why you found it interesting, hopefully in a succinct fashion. Sure. So briefly, uh, let's say uh, GAN, a GAN, is a generative adversarial network. It's the idea that you can take two uh, neural networks and have one generate uh, a signal and the other try to distinguish that signal from uh, other samples and say, I can tell you faked me or yeah, I can't. So that's what GANs are about generally. So the idea here uh, in this paper is interesting in the sense of uh, potentially being able to um, convince uh, an observer that you may not be doing what they think you're doing. So if we could use uh, GANs to generate convincing time series signals, you can imagine all kinds of interesting ideas around uh, privacy preservation. So uh, we don't know whether this will go anywhere in the future, but uh, as part of my interest in uh, anti-censorship and anti-surveillance, I'm always interested in technologies that might be able to uh, synthesize signals that might confuse uh, a surveiller, let's say. A lot of big ideas in this podcast. Um, Dr. David Archer, thank you so much for your time. This is really a lot of really interesting research. Uh, anything to say before we close off? No, I appreciate being here. I thank, thank you for inviting me. And uh, it was really great to be able to talk about this interesting topic. Wonderful. Okay. Well, um, Cryptography FM will be um, there again next week. And maybe it's going to be you who's on next time to talk about your interesting ideas, your interesting research, your applied cryptography, uh, live post-quantum crypto library, 
or protocol implementation, or maybe you have a new blockchain, please don't have a new blockchain. Come and talk about it. This show, Cryptography FM, is a way to get people on a new platform for open discussions, hopefully interesting and thoughtful and um, valuable questions with exciting and fascinating answers. So whether you're a listener or an active participant, I hope to see you again next week on Cryptography FM.